0: We are uh, not in a particular passage of note this morning. Going to be spending time in uh, a number of scriptures as we consider together uh, the nature of our Savior's birth. We begin our study today into this time which we call Christmas. Holiday itself has any number of incarnations, directed in any number of ways and for any number of purposes. We, uh, here at Legacy Baptist Church, are blessed to see in it a measure of memorial, a holiday in which the advent of our Savior savior and the Savior of this world is acknowledged, and a time in which society still connects our joy and goodwill to the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a blessing. We thank God for this. It is, of course, that finished work that I'd like to contemplate, over the course of the next several messages, we'll talk this morning and this evening and next Sunday morning as well. So the account of Jesus Christ, of his birth. Now, normally I want to culminate the, a, a series of Christmas or, or leading up to Christmas. I want to culminate that series with the the promise of the birth of Jesus. But this year, I wanna begin with that promise, and we're going to walk through, in in the same way that we have over the last several weeks, Um, first humility, then forgiveness, and then truth. We've been on this theme uh, for a little while now, and we're gonna stay on it for just a little bit longer beginning with this promise of the birth of Jesus, then going to his sacrifice, and then finally the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior. The account of the birth of Jesus Christ is significant in that it is, outside of a very small subset of people to whom it had been given to interact with the divine, it, it, it is a very unremarkable and inauspicious story. Mary and her husband Joseph knew of the significance of the child who would save their people from their sins. Mary's cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias knew of the significance of the child through uh, the angelic gift and proclamation of the one who would be his herald. Then there were the shepherds, under whom the angel Gabriel appeared and announced the birth of Christ the Lord. A month later, there was an elderly man and an elderly woman in the temple that would acknowledge the significance of his birth during Jesus' visit to the temple to be um, redeemed. And years later, we would see wise men come from the east, having seen the child star and knowing that the King of Kings had been born. Now, we have that very small handful of people and then we have everyone that they told, right? So the Bible tells us that the shepherds went and told these things and, and a measure of people marveled. <clears throat> but beyond that, and, and, the, and it was, we would presume a, a somewhat of a little stir. The only time that there was a real stir is when the wise men came to Herod and there was a stir and everyone was a little bit troubled by that and then that trouble became great trouble as Herod decided to kill a bunch of children because of it. But even in that, the focus wasn't so much on the child that Herod was looking for as much as the fact that children were dying, right? We don't see in this time some great upheaval of preparation for Messiah in society. The birth was not even really normal as we would consider normal. The birth of Jesus was less than normal. He was humble, about as insignificant as it could possibly be. And this manner of coming into the world in itself is a metaphor for the life and the ministry of the child who was born. We'll talk more about this later, but we think about that concept in Isaiah 53, describing the suffering servant, describing this suffering servant who we know to be Christ as a man who has no form nor comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. In this humble event, which by every human and historical metric must be insignificant, we find, however, the fingerprints and absolute significance of God's plan. Now follow this with me. We have many proofs that Jesus of Nazareth was and is, in fact, the Messiah of God. And one of them one of the proofs that we don't necessarily think about, we know his signs and his wonders and his miracles, and, and we know of his, his uh, resurrection and, and, and uh, the testimony of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have all of these testimonies. But one of the things that we, and, and, and even the, the pro- prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' birth, right? The prophecies of uh, a virgin birth and the prophecies of where he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And all of these elements of prophetic um, reality that we see meet in Christ. But one of these unique things that we see that bears the marks that Jesus was Messiah is in fact, the nature, the humble nature of His coming. Follow this with me. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians, chapter one of which I often call um, I often re- recall our minds too, chapters one, two and three, in fact, Paul teaches one of the paradoxes of Christianity. Might be better titled the paradoxes of God's design. We often speak of Jesus' humble birth as a mark of the kind of life he would leave, that he would be a humble man, a man of sacrifice, not just in the end of his life, but all throughout his life. But there's something much deeper than this in the expression of humility that we find here. We find the very essence of God's design. We find this paradox of Christianity that God has taken the high things of this world and made them low, and God has taken the low things of this world and exalted them. This is seen in Jesus' birth. This is seen in the nature. This is seen in the person who God chose to bring him into the world. This is seen in not just Mary, but also Joseph. This is seen in the the nature of, of where he was born. This is seen in who was there that night. This is seen in the fact that this was announced unto shepherds, not unto kings. A direct expression of the divine in contrast to an earthly expression of power or of dignity or of might. And to understand this, I'd like us to spend time, most of our time today, walking through the principles in the Bible regarding the nature of how God sees humility and pride. And then we'll take a few moments to study its articulation before applying it to our lives a little bit. We find in James chapter 4, verse 6, the second half of this, the Bible says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. We see in 1 Peter 5, the second half of verse 5, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Same thing. Humility can be defined in any number of ways. Biblically speaking, we see humility as recognizing that in myself I am nothing, and I have nothing, and therefore everything in life is a gift from God's hand and must be lived through his grace. In contrast, then, pride would be a fullness of self, where I regard my qualities, my capacities, as an extension of my own work, my own effort, my own perhaps even good fortune, rather than as a gift from God. Pride, in contrast to humility, compels me to be self-righteous, self-interested, and self-sufficient, self-reliant. So if we're to boil it down, pride is self. Biblical pride, thus being self above God. And humility is selfless, with biblical humility being God and others above self. And the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. These principles not just being found here in James, but being littered all throughout the scriptures. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility." That's not what the world says, right? The world does not relate humility to honor. If you want to talk about what is honor in the sense of the world, humility will not be a word that comes up. But the Bible says before honor, before honor in the Lord, the one that God will lift up before honor is humility. Proverbs 18 12, before destruction the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. That same principle. Proverbs 22 verse four, "By humility and the fear and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor and life, humility and fear. Humbling oneself before the Lord and reverencing the Lord." Proverbs 16:19, "Better is it? Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Far better to rest among those who are humble. Though there will be no accolades, though there will be no applause, though there will be no uh, greatness of that sort, far better to be there than to be in a place of pride, though it might give great gain in this world. Proverbs twenty-nine twenty-three: A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Pride is often regarded among Christians as the mother of all sins the sin from which all other sins find their strength and their root. That it is only in a man's true conviction that he is somehow above God, that he is somehow entitled to disregard God. It is only in self, in the, the, the delusion that somehow I have the right to exalt myself above God in some way, shape, or form that I could ever have any measure of comfort or confidence in rebelling against the design of my creator and my judge. But there is an interesting through line in all of these principles. As we think of the nature of self and how much of an affront self is to the God of all flesh, we recognize naturally that God is, is worthy of our humility. That God is worthy of our abasement, that to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord is our reasonable service. But notice the through line. It doesn't just say, God resists the proud, so you had better be humble. It says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but exalts the humble. See, it's not just that God resists the proud. It's not just that God says, well, don't be proud. And if you're proud, I will resist you. And if you're humble, good for you. That's what you're supposed to do. It's, no, if you are humble, I will exalt you. I will bless you. I will give you grace. I will lift you up. I will uphold the humble in spirit. Those who align with reality as it exists don't just become neutral in this life, but they become the beneficiaries of great blessing. Because God is at the very core of his being gracious. When at once we as humans operate in a manner which is in line with God's character, we then position ourselves to be the unencumbered recipients of that part of God's nature, which is invoked when we obey. So in other words, when we obey, we are actually invoking God's true nature of love and grace. And so God then, in his his nature, pours out his blessings upon us. In the same way that when we are proud and we resist God, we we, we elevate self, we are invoking the part of God that is just and righteous. And thus we must face that resistance. Let me illustrate this for you. I have a little boy who is very eager to become a man. And this little boy, in very little boy fashion, uh, is eager to express his abilities and his capacities to reflect on the nature of his up-and-coming manhood, uh, by desiring to always compare his abilities and capacities to his father. So he has a habit of comparing himself to his father and attempting to do things to dominate his father. Whether that be, Dad, when you were my age, were you this fast? Dad, when you were my age, were you this strong? Or, Dad, you know I can do that too. And he is constantly comparing himself to his father as a means by which to, to, uh, to, to establish his ma- manhood. Manhood. So when we play sports, his mind is not necessarily on kicking the ball, throwing the ball, hitting the ball. His mind is on showing his father how much better he is than his father at everything. Now, the only problem is he's six years old, right? So he's not better than his father at anything. And it's important for him to know that he isn't better than dad. Now, there was a time where dad would play and, son would win and dominate and there's still a time and a place for that. But because of the particular mindset that my son is in, it means that much of our time playing involves my little boy attempting to dominate me and me resisting that domination and dominating him back. Now this is not by my choice. I don't get my jollies out of competing and dominating six-year-old children. It's just not, not where the fun lies in sports. But as long as my boy is going to entertain delusions of grandeur, there's going to be a fatherly obligation that rests upon me to help him relate himself to life properly. Because if I don't do this and I let him win all the time and I actually allow him to think that he is better than dad at these things then it is possible that he will be so convinced of his own superiority that he will then attempt to dominate someone else. And he will find very quickly that life doesn't work that way. And so I have to help him orient himself properly to the life and the surroundings that are around him, not being mean or cruel or anything of the sort. But as long as he is going to insist on dominating me, I am going to play by his rules, if I may put it that way. When at once we can just have some fun, and he's he's done dominating me, I am then free to stop dominating him. So then if we may think about it this way, as long as I operate in competition with God, God is obligated to continually put me in my place through resistance, resistance and abasement. As long as I am going to continually insist that I'm better than God, that I know better than God, that I am stronger than God, that I can do this without God, God is going to go about his job of lovingly showing me that that's simply not true. When at once I rightly relate myself to my father and I place myself, lower myself to a right place with relation to God's design, understanding who he is and who I is, who I is, who I am, then God is free to, instead of spending his time resisting me, he is now free to bless me, just as when my son decides to stop trying to dominate me, we might be able to actually do something other than compete, and and thus he might be able to grow a little bit faster and better, and we might be able to make some progress. And this is fundamental to God's design. As long as I continue to resist him, as long as I continue to try to place myself above him, God must, in his love and in his faithfulness to me, resist me. When I at once rightly relate myself to him, then he is freed to stop resisting me and to be able to bless me. Jesus taught this in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then spake Jesus to the multitudes and his disciples saying, "'The scribes and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. "'All therefore excuse me. Uh, all therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, "'that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, "'for they say and do not. "'For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne "'and lay them upon men's shoulders, "'but they themselves will not move them "'with one of their fingers. "'But all their works they do for to be seen of men.' They make broad their phylacteries, which were long tassels at the end of their garments, and that was a, um, uh, it, it would have been a, a sign of, of compliance with the Old Testament law, and thus, in their minds, godliness. And enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ. And all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. This is God's design. And in this knowledge, we are then afforded a unique perspective regarding the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come in humility because this made his Messiahship more ironic. Jesus didn't come in humility out of some random chance that this is just the person, this is just the woman, this is just the man, this is just the place. Jesus didn't come in humility just to fulfill prophecy. That's not how prophecy works. Much to the contrary, with all prophecy, the prophecy exists because of what would happen things don't happen because the prophecy exists, okay? You know what I mean by that? The prophecy didn't come to being and God said, oh no, now I've got to align with this prophecy. No, God gave the prophecy because of what was going to happen, right? So the prophecy exists because of what would actually happen. The reason why Jesus came in humility, Christian, why he had such obscure and humble beginnings, why his life was not one of honor or wealth or might, Why Isaiah 53 describes him as one in whom there is no beauty that we should desire him. The reason why Jesus came in this manner was because in coming this way, as with every other part of Jesus' coming, he fulfilled the very greatest essence, the very greatest representation of his commission to do all things in the name of his Father, to, to conform to the will of the Father, to pay the penalty for our sins. In coming this way, he perfectly reflects the contrast between the thoughts, the priorities, and the intents of this world, and the thoughts, priorities, and intents of God. He came as a living contrast to the direction that the world was pointed. He came as a living rebuttal to everything that the world holds dear. The world wants kings to come in grand fashion, to be announced, to have all of the glory and all of the honor to be placed in in, uh, um, lavish clothes and, and to have crowds of accolades surrounding them, and Jesus was placed in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and rejoiced over by shepherds coming from their fields, right? That contrast is essential. That contrast is intentional. In coming this way, God showed something about himself and something about what he wants from us. And this thought gives way to Paul's teaching, as I mentioned earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Paul is writing to a church which was very, very proud, which was bickering and arguing over who was superior. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. They were a divided church. They were carnal. They were driven by their flesh. They allowed sins, flesh, uh, uh, fleshly priorities to operate within the the scope of the church. They were carnal as it related to uh, the people that were operating in the church. We think of 1 Corinthians 6 and the man that was fornicating with his mother-in-law. We read uh, once a month in our time around the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's table, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, about the carnality of the way that they invoked the Lord's table. They were withholding from those that that did not have the means by which to provide for themselves. Uh, They were turning into a drunken and revelous feast. They They were carnal, to the core, selfish. They were really only a hollowed shell of a New Testament church. Not at all a reflection of the true and living God. And Paul's letter to them was a direct, but in every way possible, quite gentle rebuke. He had to be grave, for their sin was grave, and they needed to repent. But he also wanted them to know his, well, his love for them and God's love for them as well. And as a part of his introduction, he felt it necessary to establish this contrast between the way that the world thinks and operates and the way that God thinks and operates. And Christian, don't lose this. Because when Jesus came into this world, the manner in which he came into this world points us to this principle and desires to teach us of this principle. Paul speaks to this controversy specifically related to the nature of the gospel and the preaching of the cross. In it, he contemplates God's design in using something that the world would perceive as as deeply offensive, the cross. The cross is deeply offensive to the world. And it's not necessarily the fact that it was a piece of wood that people were hung on, but the very indignity, the shame, the uh, nature of the king of kings coming by virtue of such indignity and shame. And then, of course, not only is the preaching of the cross, but then God saw fit to use this medium called preaching, which in and of itself is, is unique for while we have grand orders and they are made men of of great stature in this world so that the great orders of this world are men that we remember. Most of the men who have fundamentally changed lives with their words in this world are not written in the history books. The majority of the men Who have fundamentally affected nations, empires, in ways that no order ever could, are not written in the history books. It's the foolishness of preaching, the preaching of this offensive thing called the cross that God has used. So he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 29, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent." Notice the contrast here. When Paul speaks of the foolishness of preaching, it isn't because words cannot be powerful. I just mentioned that, right? Words are without question one of the most powerful things in humanity, the most powerful things humanity has ever known. Words, whether that's written or spoken, words are powerful. But much to the rather, it is the kind of words which are foolishness. The the world is impressed by eloquence, by the things which appeal and stimulate mind and emotions, deep things, complicated things, beautiful sentiments. But God brought a message which subverted all of those expectations. The gospel is simple. The gospel is rooted in a message of human incapacity, human sinfulness with the only true solution being humility and repentance to allow God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If you want to win people to your cause, that's not the way to do it. Those are not the words to use. But to those who have the faith to hear it. See, here's the thing. If I want to, if I want to win people, if I want to make friends, the preaching of the cross is not the way to do it but if I want to see the power of God, if I want God to win people, the preaching of the cross is the only way to do it. In these words, <clears throat> there's no power for me, but there's all the power of God. That's a paradox. That's strange. That's subversive of our expectations. That's not the way the world works, but that's how God works. To those who have the faith to hear it, it is the essence of the power and glory of God, the preaching of the cross, God doing for me what I cannot do for myself. Continuing, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block, unto the Greeks, foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, so we see the contrast, right? that God has designed a system where all the wisdom and even the communicative capacity of those dedicated to the spirit of this world falls flat when compared to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all of the orders in the world can spend their days and their hours uh, um, weaving their words together into great eloquence in order to move the hearts of men and the power of the gospel can turn the hearts on a dime should the Lord will it. And Christ would prove this taking 12 unlearned men, these disciples, and using them, not just to build the church of Acts, but using them, as would be testified, by those in the cities to which they went to turn the world upside down. These men did not have an education of formal note, but they were men who had been with Jesus they were men who had followed Jesus. They were obedient men. They were men willing to set themselves aside and give a message, a message of foolishness, a message which would win them no friends, but a message which would win God hearts. The world needs orators. The world needs men of charisma. The world needs men of power. The world needs men of honor. The world needs men of wealth to accomplish their tasks. The world looks for these kinds of men. The world elevates these kinds of men because the world needs these kinds of men. The gospel needs no such authority, no such charm, no such resources. The gospel only needs men and women who are willing and obedient. And the power of the gospel can pierce even the darkest of hearts. But it also means that for those who are proud and those who are dedicated to self, the gospel is deeply offensive. The educated world wants an elaborate and sophisticated system. The religious world wants signs and wonders, right? The Jews seek signs. The Greeks desire wisdom. To the Jews then, to the religious, to the religious outside of of Christ, Christ is a stumbling block. They stumble at him because they say, I have to do something. I must do something. If I don't do something, there can't be any success. I need, I need steps. I need metrics. I need results. I need to see. I need, I, 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 need, I need the checklist. And so the religious world stumbles at that stumbling stone that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the educated world, the w- wise world stumbles because they say, no, it must be elaborate. It must weave itself in and out of the fabric of all of human wisdom and understanding. It must build upon the knowledge of the ancients. And so it is to them foolishness. This whole foolish thing of this man who was nobody saying these words and dying and raising again, that's foolishness. But to those that believe, it is the power of God. The gospel gave us this very unique thing. This gospel gave us a teacher, but a crucified teacher. Foolish to the Greeks, offensive to the Jews, but unto those who are listening, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Showing that God's foolishness is still wiser than the wisest of men, and God's weakness is still more powerful than the most powerful of men. Continuing, verse 26. God has chosen to use things of humility, things of foolishness, things of weakness, things which the spirit of this world rejects, despises. And he has chosen these specifically. He did not choose these at random. He has chosen these specifically to paint the direct contrast between the way of man and the way of God. So that if a man desires to reap the benefits to come from following God by faith, he must do it by consciously rejecting the spirit of the world with all of its temporal benefits, with all of its temporal advantages, and instead embrace the spirit of Christ with all of the temporal shortcomings and disadvantages that might come along with it. And Jesus began teaching this lesson from the very moment that he was conceived. And a young girl in a small town named Nazareth, betrothed to a carpenter, born in a stable, laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And it would continue throughout his life, speaking what he was told by his father, doing what he was told by his father, a man of absolute humility and submission and obedience, reflecting in himself the deepest essence of God's design, a man who humbled himself that God could exalt him in due time. And this is the lesson that I would desire for us to carry away from this first contemplation, on Christmas this morning. Christian holidays have always been kind of a strange thing because in the scriptures there are no Christian holidays, right? <laughs> to that end, they have grown through time and culture, assuming and repurposing the traditions of those cultures who by the power of God at some point in history were completely upended by the gospel of Christ so that you find that most of our Christmas traditions come from uh, various smatterings of, of uh, Western and, and Eastern European uh, pagan traditions that then, when these cultures were overcome by Christ at various times throughout history, uh, found some sort of fingerprints being placed onto the nature of Christian worship. And this, in most ways, is ta- can, can be taken one of two ways. First, it can be taken as Compromise or it can be taken as simply the tremendous power of the gospel so that so in in when we see so many unique characteristics cultural distinctives being assimilated into christian tradition right you can either say wow christianity has really compromised or you can say wow christianity has really has come into cultures and so upended them so changed the hearts and lives of men that we see the fingerprints of a thousand years of their history find their way into Christian tradition, so that Christian tradition is this amazing smattering of Jew and of Gentile and of male and of female and of bond and of free. However you want to look at it, you look at it, and that's fine. The only true unique Christian holiday, actually, is Thanksgiving. And that's kind of interesting, right? That Thanksgiving is the only holiday which derives every element of its essence from Christian principle, which is naturally why society fought so hard to get rid of it with Black Friday. But the other holidays we see, we see Christianity and we see, uh, we see Christianity reflected in Christmas and we see Christianity reflected in the resurrection. Both of those holidays are, have found their way back in our society to their pagan roots and no surprises there, right? But though Christmas and Resurrection, which of course is around Easter and, uh, and, and um, all of the various elements of those holidays, we've talked about that before, though those have devolved back to their pagan roots in secular society, Thanksgiving can't devolve back to any roots because its roots are in Christianity, so they just have to sweep it under the rug. It doesn't have to be so among the followers of the true and living God, right? Right? In this season, it is still our privilege to reflect upon the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our joy to consider the faith of his mother and his father, to contemplate the miracle of his conception, and perhaps most importantly, to dwell upon the deep love that would inspire the God of all flesh to send his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. But Christmas is not just meant for us to remember what was. It's an opportunity for us to be invigorated on how what was informs what is. And we'll do this over the course of the next several days in various ways, as each of us observes, more or less, various Christmas traditions. But let us also take a lesson from the manner of Christ's coming itself. That all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth call us to see once again the design of God. That God chose in every way in Jesus's coming the foolish things of this world. God chose in every manner of Christ's birth the insignificant and the inauspicious, the weak things of this world, the things which are despised. And he did that on purpose. He chose the foolish things to confound the wise. He chose the weak things to confound the mighty. He chose that which is despised to bring to naught that which is. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. An indelible testimony of the system that God has put in place, found even in those lowly elements of Christ's physical birth. And this leaves us only then to consider our own part in the process. If our shepherd and the bishop of our souls, if our master and our king the one whom we follow, if he, in love and obedience to the Father, would humble himself so, and not just humble himself in manner of living, but also even in manner of appearing, how much more should I do the same? If God's design is so indelible in the heavens that every essence of the life of Jesus reflected humility and submission in obedience to the will of the Father, how much more ought my life do so? We'll consider in the weeks to come as well. But if Jesus' choice in doing these things led to such exaltation and glory before the Father, how foolish would it be to follow the wisdom of this world? How silly would it be to subvert ourselves in the world to come by following the might of this world? How much would it bring to naught our expectations of eternity to pursue honor in this world above God's design? And so we're reminded that God's way is not man's way, that God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. But as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts higher than man's thoughts and God's ways higher than man's ways. And let's use this Christmas season and all the other ways that you're going to utilize it unto God's glory. Let's utilize it in this season to remember Christ's humility and to guide our feet to align them with that sentiment and that in a world that is rapidly, running into this um, spirit of pride and of self-exaltation, may we be walking the other way, following Christ down this path of humility, knowing that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.